Well, happy Easter. We are so glad that you chose to come and worship with us today. It's, it's an honor to have you. Uh, thanks for choosing to be here. About 20 years ago, I found myself driving down a dark road. I mean that literally, not metaphorically. I was driving down a very dark road. It was in Mount Storm, West Virginia, which is a very aptly named place. I was working at a, a power plant there at the time. And I was driving to, to work early, uh, and it was a, a snowy, icy road. And I took a corner too fast, and I went out of control, and I, I hit a bank, and I flipped over, and, and I found myself upside down over this bank, and I can never, I'll never forget just hanging there by my seatbelt. The radio was playing. I remember reaching down, turning the radio off. Fortunately, I was okay. I was able to go up the road. My roommate was right behind me. And I think I've always kind of prided myself in being able to handle something like that very well. So I was fine until the next time I got into a car. The very first time I got in a car to drive after that, I was clutching that steering wheel. My knuckles were getting white, and my shoulders were just tight. I mean, it almost felt like they could be touching each other. They were so tight. And I found out there's a name for this. It's actually got a... It's almost like a disorder. It's called car crash anxiety. It's like, I get it. Um, so it took a while to, to get over that. And maybe you've experienced that. Or maybe you've experienced another kind of crash that can happen in life. Uh, because there's other crashes that can cause anxiety. They typically occur right after we've done something that we really regret. And these kind of crashes can come in a lot of different forms. It can be a crash where you've said a harsh word to your spouse or to a child, or maybe you've spoken that way to a parent or to a teacher. And in those moments, you just wish more than anything that life had one of those undo buttons, like on a word processor. It's like, if I could just go back 10 seconds and take back what I just said. Or the crashes can come with a lot more consequences. Maybe it was a, a bad business deal. Maybe it was a, a marital infidelity that had been kept quiet for some time and then came into the light. And with that comes anxiety. With that, when you have got to go through life the next day, when you've got to try and somehow reconcile this broken relationship, when you've got to walk back through the doors of a church, it can be a lot like getting back in that automobile just after you've had an accident. So how do we recover when we fail like this? The Christian life is full of failures. They happen all the time. How do we recover when we fail? Another way to say it is how do I get back on the road of discipleship? That's going to be our subject today, and we'll be in Mark chapter 15. We'll start at verse 42 and read through Mark 16, verse 8. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Mark 15, 42 to 16, 8. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage 
and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And when they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen he is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You may be seated. In the passage that I just read, you saw some characters that had uh, become prominent now here at the end of the book of Mark. You saw this group of women, and then you saw Joseph of Arimathea, and then you hear from Christ himself, at least about Christ himself, from this man in the tomb. But there is a group of people that are noticeably absent in this section of Mark, of people that you would expect to be there, and that is the disciples of Christ. So this morning, we're going to walk through this passage, and we're going to contrast the noticeable absence of the disciples to what we're seeing in these other groups of people. We'll see the women who were faithfully remaining, Joseph who was fearlessly requesting, Jesus who was freely restoring, and then we'll answer that question, how do I get back on the road with Christ? When I've had a fail, how do I get back on the road with Christ, even if it's for the first time? So we're going to go down uh, through this passage now. And the first group I want to consider are the women, the ones we just heard about. And they really come on the scene just prior to what we read. If we go back to verses 40 and 41, it said there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger of, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So there's these women that have been viewing the crucifixion. That's what we're talking about. That was the thing they were looking at from a distance. They've been watching all that had been going on. They've been following and traveling along with Jesus as well. And in this account, there's two very important things that we need to notice. First of all, who is around and who isn't? It's important that the disciples at this point have completely removed themselves from what has happened. They're, they're nowhere to be found. They've just kind of split. You've you got to ask yourself the question, well, why have they done this? So many times Christ said, look, we're going to Jerusalem. 
I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. It wasn't just one time they heard that. It was, it was multiple times that they'd heard that. And then several times, in, in leading right up to this passage, we saw that Jesus was trying to lead on them a bit. Whenever he was praying in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, please stay awake and pray with me. They couldn't even do that. They fell sound asleep. And then one of the most bold disciples, Peter, said that, Lord, I would, I would die for you. And he just kind of shook his head and said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before this thing is all said and done. So the disciples, now they're just gone. They're just absent. They're out of the picture. And we come to these ladies. And something you also you notice in verse 40, it says that they're watching from a distance. And that was intentionally put there to raise this question in the mind of the reader. Will these women, like the disciples, fully identify themselves with Christ, or are they going to hang back at a distance like this passage is suggesting? And what we find is that they do not just hang back at a distance. And we come to chapter 16 and look at verses 1 and 2. It says there, when the Sabbath was over, when it was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So this would have been on Sunday. These ladies who go to care for the body of Christ uh, are present. Now, Christ told the disciples that he was going to be raised on the third day. They should have been there with like their camera crew or something, right? Recording this event. But no, they're, they're noticeably absent. And then if we go down to verse 3, we see that Mark is going to take another jab at their absenteeism. And they were saying to one another, these women, are, they're, they're talking to each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now this is, this is another jab to say, hey, big tough guys, where are you now? You're not here. You're not there to roll away the stone. So we see here these ladies are an example of faithfulness to Christ much more so than the men are being. And before we beat up on these guys too hard, I think that moments of weak faith can affect us all. And you've got to put yourself in the shoes of these disciples for a minute. They've been walking with Christ. They've been seeing his miracle. He was their trusted leader. And now all of a sudden, he's gone. Now, granted, yeah, they completely forgot, I think, that he said he was going to rise again. If you remember the words of Thomas, he's even going to doubt when others have told him Jesus had risen again. So there's these doubts that are creeping in. And I think in most of our lives, when we look at our circumstances, it's easy for us to have a doubt or two. I think it's easy for us to be challenged whether or not do we really buy this thing because Sometimes, God, this world seems like it's just out of control. So moments of doubt, moments of weak faith that can hit us all at some time. You know, it's, it's easy for me to forget the promises that God has made whenever life is happening. Promises that he's never going to leave me or forsake me. Promises that he loves me no matter what. We're all living in this world that's fallen. I can find myself despairing if I just keep my eyes 
on my circumstances and off my Savior. God is still in charge, but I don't always act like I believe that. So first of all, we see this faithfulness of the women. We see them faithfully remaining when these disciples have fled the scene. Then we move on to a second character that we were introduced uh, to, starting in verse 43. It's this man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. It says that Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So a few things we learn about this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, one, it says he's the member of this council. Now, what council are we talking about here? It's this group of Jewish leaders called the Sanhedrin. It was 71 Jewish men, and they were like the supreme court of Jerusalem. Remember, uh, this whole region was under the control of Rome. There was a Roman leader there named Pilate who oversaw this region. But the Jews had their own ruling body, uh, this Sanhedrin, of which he was a respected member. But it also says that he was looking for the kingdom of God. And that's, that's a very interesting point because that probably leads us into what, what happened next when it says, and he took courage. Now, taking courage does not mean that you're not afraid. As a matter of fact, in, in other Gospels, when it depicts this account, it says that he sort of silently went to Pilate because he was afraid. But see, you can still have courage even when you're afraid. And I, I remember the words of the great philosopher John Wayne. And he said, you know, courage is when you're scared to death and you saddle up anyway. And that's what he's doing. He's showing great courage here because things could have gone wrong. He could have risked his seat sitting on this council. He could have lost the respect of all of his peers. He could have become ceremonially unclean from handling this dead body. And he could have been flat out refused by Pilate. Remember, Pilate and this council were the ones that just sentenced Christ to death. Here he is asking for the body. And Pilate could have simply said no. Oftentimes the Romans would leave a corpse on a cross, especially if it was treason, to be, to be abused by the, the forces of nature and the animals to, to tear it apart. But he was able to get the body back. So this took tremendous courage. And again, where are the disciples in all this? See, Mark is including this because he's pointing a finger at these scared disciples He's comparing him to this Sanhedrin member who had the courage to approach Pilate and stick around. So this is another fail by the disciples. Not only do we see them faithless in comparison to the women, we now see them fearful in comparison to Joseph of Arimathea. And I deeply admire this guy for being able to stand up to his peers uh, you know, in the Christian walk, fear is just something that you have to face. Not only do Christians have to face all the normal fears that everybody has. Am I going to make it financially? Am I going to lose a loved one? Am I going to make it in life? But then you've got this extra layer. Am I going to be persecuted for what I believe? How are my coworkers going to respond if I take a stand on this? And I have failed here before miserably. I, I remember one time whenever I was uh, working as an engineer for the government that a guy walked into my cubicle and he, he told this really bad joke. And what did I do? I, I laughed. And then he left the room and a co-worker of mine 
came to me and said, you know, I just heard you laugh at that joke. He said, I, I just don't see where that's consistent with what you say that you believe. That was tough. But see, I had this fear. I didn't want to stand out. I, I, I didn't want my coworkers to think that I was weird, so I, I just went along with it. So we have this example of courage in Joseph. We see him fearlessly requesting the body of Christ. And the truth is that we as Christians have a number of areas in which we can fail. Came across an article one time by a guy named, a guy named John Rose, and he was talking about ways that Christians often fail. And two that stuck out to me was one, he said, we're too insulated that we can have this tendency to just hang around other Christians. And maybe it's because we don't want to stand out. Maybe there's, for whatever reason, but it's very hard to get to know a group of people we're trying to reach if we're not spending time with them. And then secondly, that we're too confident God is pleased with our behavior. We're too easy to let ourselves off the hook. As a matter of fact, he says that we let ourselves off the hook so easily that that hook has been worn down to a nub that a worm couldn't even crawl around. That was a little pointed, I thought, but uh, yeah, I mean, we, we tend to think we're doing okay instead of asking ourselves some thoughtful questions. How am I doing life? Am I pleasing God with how I'm spending my time, uh, what I'm choosing to see? So see, we often fail. This is part of the Christian experience. Now, fortunately, the story doesn't end there. Uh, the good news is to come. And I've pointed out all these failures of these disciples, their absence from all that's going on in the story right now, the need for these other folks to come in and, and fill in the gaps that these, these disciples are leaving. And now we come to Christ himself. And we see that the women in this story, they've approached the tomb. They found that the stone has rolled away. And then they walk inside this dark tomb. Now, if that's not terrifying enough to walk into a dark tomb expecting to find a body, they didn't find a body, there's a guy sitting there. And it says in verses 6 and 7, it says, Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. Now here, see, hope is kindled. Because in spite of all the screw-ups, because they've shown weak faith, they've had great fear, even though the predictions that Christ had made about his own death and resurrection, it's like they went right in one ear and right out the other. Even in spite of all of that, Christ has not forgotten them. And these women get these instructions from this angel in this tomb. Go and find him. Go and tell people about him. He'll meet them in Galilee, by the way, which was their point of origin before they began this journey to Jerusalem. So this is the good news. And I love the way this one commentator puts it. He says, And the command of the young man to the women at the empty tomb is a reminder to us that failure is not a dead end. There would be forgiveness. There would be restoration. There is hope for those who have failed in their discipleship. Those who have shamefully abandoned Jesus and equally disgracefully denied him are now being offered the hope of restoration.
So if you've messed up, if you've veered off the road, if you've messed, if you've screwed up and displeased God, there's hope. There's restoration. There's forgiveness that Christ is offering through his death and resurrection. See, you can always get back on the road again. There's only one unforgivable mistake that you can make. And that is to not get on the road to begin with. And for those of you who are here this morning, and you're unsure where you stand with God, if you have some doubt, any doubt whatsoever, about where you may be spending eternity if you were to die today, I want to speak directly to you for just a moment. And I want to talk about how to take these first steps these first steps towards Christ. And first of all, in Romans 3.23, we see that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, none of us are unscathed. We come into this world with a sinful nature. And it says there that all have sinned. And as someone told me once, all means all, and that's all all means. There's no exceptions here. We've all sinned. We've all displeased God. We all fall short. And then Scripture goes on to say in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. This is what we earn by virtue of being sinners. And the death that's being spoken of in this passage is a death that goes beyond a physical death. It's speaking of an eternal separation from God because we're sinners. You see, sin is like this disease. It's like this cancer that we're born with in our bodies. And we've all got it without exception. Fortunately, the story goes on. It doesn't end there. Because in Romans 5.8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ became man, fully God, fully man. And he took this cancer called sin that we're born with, and he takes it and he puts it in himself. And in doing so, he bears all the punishment. He bears all the blame for the sins that you and I have committed. Every sin that was committed before him, every sin that would be committed after him, he took the punishment and the wrath for. So now there's this free gift that's extended to us. And it's a very easy gift to receive. And it says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not from works so that no one can boast. It's this free gift that is available to you, and here's the key, by faith. Now, you all exercise faith today already. You may not have realized it. But see, when you came down, when you entered the doors and you sat down in that seat... I doubt that any of you stopped to inspect that chair to see if it was going to hold you. You believe that it would. See, that's faith. It's believing something to be true. And Jesus is saying that by trusting in what I have done for you, by believing in me, you can be saved. I want to take a moment right now. I just want to ask everyone if you would just bow your head and close your eyes. If you're ready to take that next step and trust in Christ as your Savior, I want to lead you in a prayer right now for you to make your faith known to God. And right now where you're sitting, just say silently, 
to the Lord, Father, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I can't save myself. I believe that Jesus died for me and was raised from the dead. And I am trusting in his work to save me from my sin. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You know, if you prayed that prayer this morning, we would like for you to contact us. Um, we've got an email address and a phone number here. We want to send you a gift. We want to get you started on this journey of discipleship that I've been talking about this morning. Trusting Christ as your Savior is step one. And we want to lead you down the path of maturity and growing in Christ. Now, I want to come back to the question that I posed at the very beginning. When I failed... How do I get back on the road of being a disciple? And we see the work that Christ has done. He has freely restored these disciples. He's putting them back in good standing. Now, see, the truth is we're all going to fail at some point. I came across a, a fantastic article written by two women, uh, two women who both uh, were, were raised in the church. They were, they were born into Christian families. Uh, they're both on staff at churches right now. But when they were young women, they were both pregnant out of wedlock. And in that article, they talk about how difficult it was for them to go back to church, that they felt sort of ashamed and dirty, and they felt like they were being condemned. So in this, they outline four steps to recover from a sin. And they write this. First of all, accept God's forgiveness. Accept God's forgiveness. Confessed sin is forgiven sin. God is never going to hold a sin against you when you have repented, when you've confessed it to Him. Uh, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 6.11, he says, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You've been washed clean and He's forgiven you. And he's removed that transgression. It says in Psalms 103, he has removed that sin as far away from you as the east is from the west. He's forgiven you. And he sees you as pure and made holy through his grace. And then secondly, we do have to accept the consequences. Virtually everything that you and I do is going to impact someone else. And the hard and painful thing about sins is it impacts those, oftentimes it impacts those we love the most, uh, the worst. So we have to accept these consequences. It can mean a broken relationship. It can mean a bruised friendship. And the truth is, all we can do is go to that person and apologize. And we try to make things right. And then ultimately they're responsible for what they're going to do with that. But there are consequences that we have to accept. Third, we fight against condemnation. In Romans 8, 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that means if God is not condemning you, then you shouldn't be condemning yourself. Sometimes one of the hardest people to forgive is yourself. And I am at times, I, I am haunted. I love the way the hymn said it earlier. Haunted by the ghosts of my past. And I can hear that tape playing in my head that you've messed up. But I have to stop the tape. And I have to stop condemning myself. I have to focus on the forgiveness that Christ is extending to me. 
And by the way, we shouldn't be condemning anybody else either because we're all guilty. Christ has taken the blame for me, so I don't have to punish myself for anyone else. And then fourth, recommit yourself. Recommit yourself. Okay, you've made a mistake. You failed. You messed up. You wish you hadn't said whatever that thing was you said. You wish you hadn't did whatever that thing was you did. Well, you've got an opportunity to not do it again. We recommit ourselves to live the way Christ has commanded us to live, to ask him for help to resist temptation. And he'll be honored by both your purity and the acceptance of his grace. So putting all those things together, get back on the road faithfully and fearlessly. We've got the example of the ladies being faithful. We've got the example of Joseph of Arimathea being fearless. And when we mess up in those areas, guess what? We've got Christ freely restoring us. I want to close. Uh, I want to tell you about a group as we close that was founded in 2015. It's called the Quitters Club. And it was founded by a man named uh, Justin Cannon. And the tagline for this group is, let's give up on our dreams together. And he's got this box full of trophies. By the way, those are not his trophies. I don't think he's stuck with something long enough to win a trophy. But uh, he was an aspiring writer. And he wanted to put this club together. It was in Washington, D.C. And the invitation that he extended to people said, most of us have something special we'd like to do with our lives. At the Quitters Club, we can help each other stomp out the brush fires set in our hearts and get on with our lives. The founder of the group, the guy you see in the picture, Justin Cannon, it says he's given up all sorts of things. And he also admits that he's tortured by the dueling forces of these grand ambitions and this intense self-doubt. And most often this battle leaves him frozen, so he decided to take action and he formed this group. And honestly, he put it together thinking it would be a group of one. But within 48 hours, 35 people had already signed up so they, they got together, and they started expressing their dreams and their inability to make progress. But then this is what was so shocking, and this is what surprised everyone, that even though they thought this was going to be a group that got together to talk about their smashed dreams, this is what they did. They decided to start encouraging each other to persevere. So there was an actress in the group that was ready to give up, and they said, no, you shouldn't do that. Give it at least another year before you give up on this acting thing. And there was a, a Washingtonian there who decided he was just going to give up on this, this city he was working so hard to achieve. And they said, well, don't give up yet. There was a, a writer there whose day job was getting in the way of her artistic pursuits. And they said she needed to carve out time for her passion. So they had to come up with a new tagline that said, here we are at the Quitters Club and we're all encouraging each other to keep going. And after I read that, I thought, you know what? The Quitters Club just may be a good name for a church. Because, you see, in a church, this should be the place where the body encourages one another, especially in times where we have failures of faith and failures of courage. Please pray with me. God, what an honor it is to be your child, to know that we have a loving and forgiving Father.
Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for your obedience to take on the sin of the world to die for us and then to rise again. And we look forward to spending eternity with you, Lord Jesus. And we ask it all in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. May the loving power of God, which raised Jesus to new life, strengthen you in hope, enrich you with his love, and fill you with joy in the faith. Thank you all so much for being here today, and happy Easter.